Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Lakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver a better buying experience for your customer, more personalization in their buying path, give your customers peace of mind, and potentially create a substantial new stream of revenue for you and your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com. And while you're there, make sure you check out the blog. Currently, we are in the middle of putting out a 10-part series about trends that are impacting and will continue to impact the live entertainment industry. Uh, Again, it's 10 parts. It's talking about all these trends that maybe you are aware of, maybe some you aren't. Um, We put them in a context of why they're important to you, how you should look at them, and actions you can take to insulate yourself to protect your business from them. So all of that is available at bookingprotect.com. I also want to encourage you to come see me. That's me, Dave Wakeman, and my buddy, Simon Mab, CEO of Booking Protect, at the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia, Sydney, on the 14th and 15th of November of this year, 2019. Uh, I'm going to be giving the opening keynote on change. Simon's going to be talking about customer service, and we're going to be hanging out in the uh, trade show, doing all kinds of fun and entertaining things um, to help Angela and Joe have a successful first year conference and so that you get a chance to hang out and meet me and Simon in person. Uh, You can get your tickets today by visiting www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. That website again where you get your tickets for the Ticketing Professionals Conference is www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. As a special favor and inducement, If you buy your tickets today, I'm posting the podcast on August 27, 2019. Send me an email with your receipt to my email address, which is dave at davewakeman.com, and I'll do something special for you and your team. It could be a webinar. It could be a coaching call. It could be um, a critique of your content or your copy or your advertising, or it could be some idea, a brainstorming session. I don't know. It could be anything. It's bound to be great, though. And it's my gift to you for buying your tickets to the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Sydney on the 14th and 15th of November at www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. By the way, I always fail to mention this, but I do do this. Every Sunday, I send out an email. It is called The Business of Value, and it talks about marketing and strategy and ways that you can rethink value in your business. As a Business of Fun listener, I think you might like it. You can get that for free by sending me an email, dave at davewakeman.com. There's value there, too. Not just because I call it The Business of Value, either, but because I often will promote special things or add special things into the newsletter that will make you the first person to know about them or give you access or an opportunity to engage with me and do something that other people might not get the opportunity to do. So send me an email, put the subject line newsletter to dave at davewakeman.com and I'll get you signed up immediately. My guest today is Rob Mills. He is the director and CEO of the Gimba Group. They are a consultancy that has offices around the world. And the reason that I reached out to Rob to have him on is because they have this really cool strategy they call the Gimba Way. And it translates to something around, uh, in relation to going to the real place, which I thought was pretty awesome because that's usually where I try to get to. Um, we talked about a lot. We talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about what the Gimba Way means and how those guys and their team apply it to their customers and their clients. We talked about empathy. We went through a lot about empathy and what it means uh, as part of a sport organization, but also to have empathy be a core value of your business. 
We talked a lot about how you can bring the customer into the conversations and the conversations you're having internally in your organization. We talked about decision making. We talked about change, the challenges to creating change, you know, why you need to do it and how to make it happen. We talked about innovation. We talked about uh, people. We talked about sponsorship. We talked about sponsorship opportunities. We talked about um, China. We talked about um, possibility, vision, teams, stealing ideas, as I say, lovingly from other industries. We talked about a, a whole lot of stuff. It was really great to have Rob on. And I was totally jealous because he said he was sitting in London and it was a beautiful London summer day. And all y'all know how much I love London. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Rob Mills on the Business of Fun podcast. I want to welcome Rob Mills to the Business of Fun pod- podcast. Rob, what's up, man? I'm sitting here in London. It's a beautiful London summer day. Um, and uh, yeah, so far the week's been good. So uh, not nice to... Nice to be talking to you today. Yeah, I'm jealous because I told you when we were chatting before we started recording how much I love London. So I'm always jealous of somebody sitting in London. So this this should be fun. <laughs> um, thanks for doing this because you know I love the the philosophy of of your business. The and I, tell me if I'm saying it wrong. The Gimba Group, right? And so, that's right. Yep. And, no, you, you, yeah. See, now I'm good. <laughs> and and you have a philosophy called the Gimba Way. Right, which is talked about going to the real place. And when we started talking about doing a podcast, I was like, I want to explore this because this is sort of the heart of what I do in business, which is like, you got to get to the real problem. You have to dig deep, right? It's a ch- you ch- have to challenge yourself to be honest and truthful. Can you give my audience a little bit of an overview of your philosophy and how the gimbal way guides you? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it came from some very early work we were doing in Japan, actually, because Gemba is a, a Japanese word. And uh, we'd always had this real passion around trying to, where we can you know, sort of get out and find out what's really happening. And, and whether that be through data or just through observation, um, sort of try and find out how fans are engaging with sport or entertainment. And I think one of the, one of the awesome things about our industry is it's driven off passion. You know, no one, is going to a live event or a concert or a sports event unless they're passionate about it. We, we do it because we want to do it. I think the issue with that sometimes in the industry is that that passion can cloud sort of good judgment and, and we sometimes fall into the risk of personal paradigms and assumptions. So we've always sort of had this sort of conviction about um, trying to find out what's really happening and, and then building strategies and executions off, off that insight. And um, when, I, when uh, we're spending time in Japan, the word Gemba, came across our radar which sort of means getting out to the real place and, and in a Japanese context you know if you're a trader that's about getting onto the factory floor or getting onto the shop floor and, and finding out what's happening and we really like that essence of the word Gemba and, and hence um, named the company Gemba but also sort of embedded that um, that process and that philosophy throughout our business. Yeah and I, I mean I don't have to tell you I really dig it but you said something interesting here which I, I want to ask you about which you talked about People don't go to live events or sports or entertainment or anything of like this. They go because of passion, right? Um, and that's typically true. And then you say also that passion can tend to cloud our judgment, right? And one of the things that I talk about regularly, which is probably to the point that people are going to tune this out when I say it, is that you are not your market. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so that seems like your idea of passion clouding your judgment and my idea of you not being your market um, are intersecting. How would you explain to your clients and to people you're talking to how to be able to disconnect their passion from the decision they have to make so that they can make a better decision? Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great conversation. I think I think some of that you can do through um, you know data, you know, and, and we run our own um, proprietary you know data programs and we source a lot of third-party data and the clients got data so some of that can be done by sort of trying to bring a sort of fact-based approach to the conversation um you know and we talk about sort of trying to you know narrow the, the guessing parameters the, the data in itself won't solve anything but it might get us to a to a space where we can be creative and, and take a little bit of a risk um you know and i think it's also about sort of trying to bring the consumer into the 
strategy of, of the organisation and encouraging, you know, I mean, first of all, our team, make sure that we are actually at the coalface and we are going to those live events and those sporting events and seeing things and challenging our own paradigms, but also trying to take the clients with that as, uh, with us as well on that. I think, you know, to your point, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the existing core product of, of a, whether it be a you know, sport, music or movie event, but to bring new audiences in quite often does take innovation and does take change and, uh, and that's about sort of, as you said very well there, realising that you aren't in your own market and, and there's new segments and new audiences out there if you're prepared to, you know, throw, throw your mind open and, and look, at, look outside your, your office and find out what's going on. Yeah, and I like the way that you talked about you, you try to use data to help kind of um, take the heat out of some of these conversations, right? Um, make them more fact-based. And one of the challenges that a lot of us deal with, and I'm sure you can tell me, maybe this is something that you deal with regularly as well, is that a lot of times when I'm making a business, to business having a business-to-business conversation, which is similar to probably what you're doing, is you also have to convince people or you have to recognize the fact that even though you're trying to take the emotion out of a decision and help people get to a logical decision. You're also managing an emotional decision because all decisions are based on emotions, no matter what. Um, how do you walk that line? Because, you know, there's like people who say I'm completely rational. I'm completely data driven. I'm completely focused on uh, logic. Uh, and I know for a fact, because I've done the studies, I've seen the studies, I know everything. That's not true. Everybody's driven by emotion. Uh, how do you balance that? And, I, and I'm asking, I'm selfish because I need, I want to be better at this. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and, and I think um, it's it, it, one of our values that we talk about as an organisation is empathy, um, and it's a really core value in our business. And, and the reason why I like the word empathy is it's about sort of trying to understand the, the issues from from the other person's uh, perspective, and and sometimes. You know, we can put data in front of clients and be really rational about it and, and very pragmatic about it, and, and you know, quite often that's our role. But there's also we need to have an empathy that there's quite often a, a, a passion issue on the other side of the table that we can't just dismiss through logic. So it's about recognising that, and we've done some really, um, you know, emotional pieces of work looking at the futures of, of leagues and teams and, and and you know whether these these entities can survive and. We're dealing with people that this is their life and, you know, we can be as rational as we want, but in the end, these people want this club to survive no matter what. Um, and we, so you need to have an empathy for, for that. Because I think if you, if you show an empathy for that and you show a, a legitimate understanding of that, you may not necessarily agree with their point of view, but by showing that understanding and empathy, you're more likely to get them to at least consider where you're coming from. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that value of empathy and the behavior that falls out of it is a really critical component to our business. And I like the word empathy. I don't know that it gets used enough in business, especially not in the States, because I, I think we have allowed our business community to kind of lose touch with empathy, I think is the way to put it. At the same time, when you talk about having empathy for the people you're talking to, it also needs to translate over to the people that they're trying to reach and serve. Do you have a lot of challenge of helping people understand that like sort of empathy needs to be the core of their business as well as it is yours? Or do is that even yeah, a conversation just, you have with people? No, it does. I mean, in our own business, we sort of talk about three-way empathy, which is sort of having an empathy for our clients and empathy for each other as teammates and, and an empathy for the business. You know, you need to balance those things. And similarly, I think our clients need to as well because they're, they're, they're needing to have an empathy for their fan um, as well as having an empathy for their for their organisation or, you know, whether it be a league or a, or a team, et cetera. So, look, it is, and I think, you know, you see... The, the CEOs and the CMOs and the CFOs and organisations that we work with, and, and I'd say the one common trait that the really successful ones have and the sustainably successful ones is they're empathetic. Um, whether they use that word or it's it's a value in the organisation, you can sort of see that in their behaviour. So, yeah, look, it's you know sometimes there is a, there is a coaching element to what we do. Um, but again, I think if we can bring the fan into the room and, and explain the fan's motivations and the barriers and the opportunity around that fan, it, you know, most 
people that we work with are in the industry for the right reasons. So it's sometimes about how do we bring that fan into the room and and bring that fan to life to sort of help make better decisions. Yeah, and I I, I know for certain that the peop, most of the people who have gotten in, and I would say put the number at like 99%, have gotten into the business for the right reasons. Uh, because you you have to at the start of your career, you may make some you may make some money later on, but like when you start out, it's it's you're you're not making anything. It's it's a passion, a passion play for most people. Um, but when you talk about bringing the fan into the room, right? Which is, you know, I, I be- offer up the philosophy, right? That like you got you're really um, one job as a business, and it's creating and keeping customers. Knowing that you need that you kind of have to be able to see the world through your fans' eyes, what are some points that you kind of um, use to get the fan into the room? To use your language, you know, how how do you help that fan have a voice in the organization? Besides the data, is are there like is there like cores or is there like an outline that you kind of walk people through? Yeah, I think it, it's it's a good question, and it varies a lot by client and by project. I think. Um, Sometimes the data will help us identify a unique segment and, and size a segment, and, and that's really great, powerful stuff. But it doesn't necessarily bring that fan to life. So, um, you know, we recently did a really interesting segmentation work for a, for a major sport, and using data we identified some, you know, statistically robust segments. Um, but then we did a lot of work about naming that segment and giving giving it a name and a personality. Um, finding a picture that we thought was representative of the segment and building sort of a, a, a little mini book, if you like, and, and some mood boards around it that could be put into the into the office. So there was almost um, sort of touchstones almost. I, I always like that Indian sort of reference of a touchstone. You can go and look at it and it will touch and, and go and remember something. And I think they become interesting organisational touchstones where um, as they're thinking through a issue, you know, whether it be a strategy or a fan implementation or fan engagement piece, that they can almost reference and talk about Fred or Mary or whoever and actually bring that consumer to life. Because I think if we just leave it in a PowerPoint document or an Excel document, it's not going to really engage that group and, and embed it in their thinking. Yeah. And so what you're saying is you want to create, make the buyer look like, make it 3D, right? Make the person, it's like, in other industries, they talk a lot about personas, and and I think in like sports and entertainment, we probably do ourselves a disservice by not talking about personas as much. But it's um, you know, it's like, and you tell me if I'm wrong here. It's really just like you said, being able to say, oh, Fred or Mary or Joey, you know, this is what they look like. This is what they do. This is this is what their life looks like, and you can then, it, at least from my point of view, it gives it helps add to that empathy. It helps encourage that empathy. Yeah, and I think so. I think one of the things that a lot of businesses, but particularly sport and entertainment, is not always great at too, is is that is understanding attitudinally um, how consumers or fans engage. Because I think we're, we're we're at an interesting point. I think that marketing generally is um, I call it generalizing generations. We like to put people in buckets of millennials and X's and Y's and Z's and whatever. And you know, there's some merit to some of that, but I think also that if you look attitudinally, you know, you can find a 17-year-old female who might have attitudinally the same attitude or and same perspective of a sport or entertainment event as a 45-year-old. Um, and I think it's sometimes really just going past the obvious and going past the, the generalisations and actually delving into some of those attitudinal pieces where I think quite often there's a there's some really interesting opportunities to, to grow and, and find your audiences. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I um, will spend a little bit of time each day looking at marketing Twitter and the fact that like we tend to think that we can lump people together into huge demographic buckets that maybe encompass a billion people <laughs> at a time and that it'll be relevant, right? It's, um, it's absurd, when you put it like that, yeah, it's something that all too often becomes a default setting for people, I think. Um, you know, and I know that you have, you create these models and you make, you know, make people look 3D. It's, um, you know, but it's still a challenge to create change around that. So how do you help people understand that, like, hey, look, we have to change the way that we're 
looking at people, thinking about people, and talking to people to be successful. Because really what yeah, both of us are doing is we're talking about change. Absolutely. A massive part of our work is, is change management. Um, I think, you know, and there's, there's some very classic but still very effective frameworks that talk about change management. And I think the, the first step, which is quite often the step that gets perhaps skipped over quickly, is you need to build a compelling reason for change. You know, it needs to be really clear with the group that you're working with that there's a need for change. Um, and and Typically, when we're starting some projects, there may be some people in the organisation who see that need for change. But key part of our role is to is to build that stakeholder alignment and get everyone on the same page that there is a need for change and this is why. I think once you get that right, that's a really solid foundation. I think the, the projects where we've struggled, when we go back and look in hindsight, is that we never perhaps really got alignment on that compelling reason for change. Um, I think, and I think once you've got that foundation it's easier then to start saying, okay, well, what does success look like then? Given that situation, what is the vision? Um, what does success look like in the future? And then start building the strategies. Um, the risk sometimes if you jump straight to the strategies without getting that compelling reason for changing that vision right is that you never really get alignment. And if you don't get alignment, um, you don't get good execution. And I think, you know, we talked, started this podcast talking about you know, sort of Japanese concepts and, um, in, in Japan, there's a, there's a concept called Namawashi, which a lot of the big organisations and Toyota, one of our clients, use it. And, and Namawashi is all about alignment, about communicating up and down the organisation and make sure everyone's on the same page. And that's a really interesting reference because while at times while it feels laborious, is if you're not aligned, you don't execute well. Um, and I think that's you know, a really big part of our role is to find that compelling reason for change, get clear vision, and then make sure that we're aligned and, and progressing forward. Yeah, the what does success look like question is one that's fantastic. Um, that's one that I talk, I you know, drop it in the middle of a conversation with a client or with a prospect like a bomb. Because most of the time, I find that no one really asks that question in a way that makes it clear to people. Um, because I think everybody can go, oh, we just want to get more people in. Right. Oh, or we want to make more money or we want to make our business sustainable. Uh, And I think it's again, it goes back to the marketing generalization thing that we talked about earlier, but really putting specific measurements and having a specific idea about what success looks like usually is beneficial to driving that change that we are striving to achieve as well. Um, You know, so when you talk about asking people what success looks like in their business, you know, how much of it, you know, how often are you using it as a tool to get people to think about the business in a way that they never have before? Yeah, I think it's very much about that, um, of talking about the possibility of what it could look like, I think is a really important part of it. And, and hopefully it's also to the exciting bit too of, you know, getting away from the day-to-day and the laptop and thinking about what, what would an envisaged better future look like. So, you know, we find that um, in a workshop environment particularly that that really energises the room because, you know, the compelling reason for change might be that there's problems and, and, and things aren't as good as what you want and it's things that we need to be grounded in the reality of. But the flip side of that is that what a success look like and, and the future is, is something hopefully that is motivating and galvanizing to, to the organization as well. So it's a really, really important part of sort of, you know, having that North Star that everyone's going for is a really important um, part of driving change. Otherwise, it's to get the energy and the motivation required to, to change is, is really difficult. Yeah. And the, I think the important thing here, because this is sometimes a, a, a big challenge, right? And it goes back, I think it goes back to a lot of the things we've talked about, which is like, you're not your market, everybody being passionate in the industry, um, you know, trying to create some logic and some ways to think it, think about things, you know, using data or being a little bit more logical in the thought process, but it being grounded in reality, right? And I sometimes struggle, and this is me as somebody who's trying to help people create change or helping people maximize their revenues, um, of helping people see that they aren't painting a realistic picture of what they're dealing with. Uh, Do you have some 
some some steps or some suggestions to help people, you know, really to take a fresh look at their business or to um, move past those kind of preconceived notions or the assumptions that they're making? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a really good it's a really good challenge, and yeah, we definitely don't always get that right. But I think um, I think sometimes it's about you know it's sometimes about reframing the competitive environment as well. It's interesting when we when we talk to some some sports and, and organisations in the industry, their their vision about what could be is sometimes limited by their definition of competitors. Um, and, you know, and we have the the benefit and the luxury of, of you know working across sport and entertainment, and it's really interesting learnings that sport can learn from entertainment and vice versa. So you know we we might might be faced with someone who thinks they're doing a really good job around customer service and customer engagement or fan engagement, and we might challenge them by saying, okay, well, if you were Disney, how would you be thinking around how you deal with people queuing in a stadium? You know, what would your expectations be of going into a theme park? Because I think part of the challenge is we go, well, that's the way sports always done it. And I'm, you know, I'm expected to queue and wait for times and perhaps not get great service. But if you sort of frame it and go, well, that same consumer who's got a limited amount of dollars in their pocket could either go to a Disney theme park or go to your event. How do you, how do you stack up? It does help sometimes with that sort of um, realising that perhaps they're not as progressive as they thought they are. Or on the positive side, how exciting would it be to think that way and how good would our fans um, have experience if we thought that way as well. So there's sort of a few techniques like that we can use to, and I don't, don't like to use the word, don't like the word disruption, but to perhaps challenge the thinking and, and to, to reframe, particularly the competitive set, because the reality is that every sport and entertainment property out there is, is working in an increasingly competitive environment, which, you know, sounds like a really easy cliche and soundbite, but, you know, just, just the amount of entertainment options that consumers have these days um, is immense and growing. And unless you're really clear about your competitive set, um, there's a fair risk that you're going to get left behind. Yeah. I uh, the, the question of how would you think if you were blank, right? I use that all the time, especially when it comes to premium, uh, you know, spaces and buildings, because, you know, everything can feel commoditized in a lot of cases. And I go, the way I frame it is I go, hey, look, you can you can say you're premium, but how do you stack up to the Four Seasons, right? Or how do you stack up to Mercedes-Benz, right? And, then, and if you look at it through that lens, like if the Mercedes-Benz was laying out a premium area in an arena or a stadium, what would that look like? And you find, you you yeah. see deficits very quickly, right? Because and it, it's it's like you said, it falls back on well, this is you know we're best in class. I go, but the thing is, is like your customers, your the people you're trying to reach, aren't necessarily like comparing you to a, you know a baseball game to a basketball game. They're comp- comparing the basketball game that you're providing with a whole world of other opportunities and other ways that they can spend their money. And if you don't recognize that you limit your ability to generate revenue, to get people to buy in to what you're selling them or trying to create for them. Yeah. I think, um, you know, and one that's close to my hometown in Melbourne, the, the Australian Open tennis is a fantastic example. And, and under Craig Tiley's leadership there, um, he's re, um, in reimagine what good customer service at a sporting event looks like, and you know, particularly for the hospitality and the corporate side of it. He, you know, when he thought about best practice there, he went and hired people who were working in you know the front desks of hotels or you know working in Qantas lounges because they're used to engaging with people and providing great customer service. So when you walk into a corporate hospitality environment at Australian Open. It really is best practice. The way that you are engaged and taken through that experience is, is fantastic. But that took someone to re-think um, about the way the competitive set is and look outside our industry. I think one sometimes as an industry in sport and entertainment, we're not great at looking outside our industry for insights and bringing it back. Mm. And we're not actually great necessarily of hiring people outside of industry and bringing it in so we can bring those transferable skills, skills in. And I think where you see people that have done that, you see a sort of step change in innovation quite often. Yeah. I I think that hiring people for transferable skills or 
and I call it lovingly stealing ideas from other places that are doing things that are awesome. <laughs> uh, I think it's like it provides a tremendous opportunity, and it's also a missed opportunity because people don't always make the connection. And I, I, I try to encourage people to do it all the time. Um, so to hear you say that as well is hopefully people will take notice of that um, because I think it is super, super important. Now, I want to also ask you about something that I know that you guys spend a lot of time focusing on, which is sponsorships. Uh, sponsorship dollars uh, have been getting a lot of notice lately in the news. Um, people are talking about the big money going into sponsorships all over the world. Um, I want to know, you know, give me like your three big headlines in sponsorship right now. You know, kind of distill this for me from your point of view, touching people all over the world so that like my people can know exactly what we should be paying attention to. Yeah, it, it's a, I think it's a really interesting time to sponsorship and, and, and one of the reasons why we're spending a lot of our own internal product innovation time and challenging some of our own paradigms. You know, we've been talking about change management for clients, but we're also going to make sure that we're doing that ourselves as well. And I think we see... While there is some tremendous opportunities in sponsorship, you know, in a media environment that's increasingly fragmented um, and maybe a little bit connect, disconnected from consumers, you know, sport entertainment provides not only large platforms that reach a lot of people, um, but also the opportunity to have quite deep and meaningful relationships just because of the, you know, the passion they, they solicit. I think on the flip side of that, um, it's an industry which hasn't been good at measuring um, itself, um, and when the expectation around measurement goes up with digital, um, sponsorship increasingly can be falling behind there. So we've had a large focus on thinking about sort of price benchmarking um, tools, um, tools that help brands identify optimal sponsorships. So things that you know are pretty common in the media industry um, in the traditional sense is trying to again take those transferable learnings from how media is planned and, and planned and bought and priced and bringing that back in and making it relevant to the sponsorship industry because if the industry doesn't embrace that you know it's it's going to be increasingly hard you know these are these are big as you as you said big deals three to five year deals that take a lot more commitment than a two or three week media buy with Google or Facebook so as an industry we've got to recognize that and celebrate our strengths, but at the same time also make sure we're providing metrics to both buyers and sellers that helps make those transactions um, better and, and easier to get through the organization. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think about it because I think that, and this is kind of what I want to hear your take on this, is that people sometimes don't think through sponsorships. I guess they think about, they limit themselves in the way they think about sponsorships, right? You talked about a lot of times, maybe the sponsorship opportunity is disconnected from the consumer and, you know, it gives you an opportunity to build a relationship at the same time you're expecting to be able to measure it, you know, but how can you go beyond that? Right? Like how, how can you kind of, um, I guess for lack of a better term, explode the way you think about sponsorships because you know one of my formative experiences was working on the experiential marketing campaign that helped um, really explode yellowtail in the u.s right help get yellowtail um, in front of a, millions of football tailgaters an entirely new audience and help you know get get yellowtail into costco which made it the huge brand that you now know in america um, that was unique at the time you know, how, but that was a sponsorship. How do you yep. help people understand that, like, the world of sponsorship is only limited by their creativity? Yeah, I think it's it's. I mean, it's about having a really clear sense of purpose about why you're doing it and, and the organizational requirements. So, you know, yes, it can be a B two C piece. You know, and obviously, it's a great consumer marketing platform used use well, but it's also can be a fantastic HR platform. You know, if you're looking to engage with staff, um, it can be a great trade platform in terms of entertaining and engaging trade. Um, you know, and we see clients using it for very different reasons. So so what Coca-Cola is looking for from a sponsorship investment is very different to Toyota or the Adidas guys. Um, about 
all three of those organisations have a clear sense about why they're doing it. So part of our sort of process that we take clients through is really spending sort of a lot of time talking and not just talking to the sponsorship team, but trying to encourage the sponsorship team to also reach out to other parts of the organisation say, okay, well, what problems are we looking to solve? And is sponsorship a potential option to solve those? And, and sometimes it won't be, and that's okay. And, and being really clear on, up front on that is critical. But there's a lot of leverage that can be unlocked um, you know, across different parts of the business by having those conversations. And I think then once you're really clear on that, that helps you decide what you should buy in terms of sport and entertainment asset, but also importantly, what types of contractual rights you should acquire as well, because and I'm sure you've seen this with your experiences, you see someone who's got a really good sponsorship, but they actually don't have the contractual rights to deliver the thing that the business needs. So all that takes a lot of planning and thought to make sure that you're buying the right asset, but also have the right contractual rights. Yeah. Uh, for me, it kind of sort of it manif- ends up manifesting itself in you can sell the sponsorship, but then you forget to figure out why you needed it and what you want to do with it at the start. You're like, well, I got to have this asset or I have to make the sale. And then you forget exactly what it's there for. And then all of a sudden you're going, well, I don't know exactly how or why or what to do with this. And it becomes ineffective for people. And which kind of leads back to what you were talking about, which is like you got to understand what successes look like and why it matters to you at the very start. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's a challenge for the industry that I think we're all trying to work out what it looks like in a, in a practical sense is how, how do you get some flexibility in these contracts too because the marketing world's moving so quickly that to lock into a three- to five-year deal with no flexibility on contractual rights just doesn't feel like it makes sense. So... You know, the seller and the rights holder need some degree of commitment and comfort around a, um, you know, a financial commitment from a, from a brand. But at the same time, the brand's sort of saying, well, yep, yeah, we're perhaps happy to do that, but how do we make sure we get some flexibility as our business needs um, move as well? I think that's a really fundamental question that the industry's got to address in the next, next few years. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, I, I think it's interesting and I think it's, there's a lot of opportunity there and I think there's a lot of room for people to grow and I think it's exciting because there's also room for a lot of creativity. Um, you know, and that, that, that I've probably been saying that for now 15 years. Uh, so, so I'm sure that I'll, that'll be a trend that I continue to, to highlight. Um, but I want to ask you one more, one more about one other big, big whale, big white whale in the room, you know, talking about Moby Dick here is the Chinese market, right? I know that you've spent a lot of time in China. Uh, you're very familiar yep. with the sports mar- uh, sports market and sports business market there. And uh, everybody seems to be pushing tons of money and attention into China. Um, I don't, you know, and I don't know exactly if everybody knows what to make of it. From your experience, having lived in Shanghai for a number of years and worked there for a number of years and, you know, with a keen eye towards like experience and sponsorships and everything else. You know, what is the opportunity in China right now? And where should people be pushing, putting their attention and their resources? Yeah, that's a, that's, that is a big question. It's a big whale, as you said. Um, look, I think... Um, big country, big question. The, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's opportunity there. And I think, you know, on, on reflection, you know, in our early days there, we probably made the mistake of our own business of trying to bite off too much, you know. I think the interesting thing in China is that you can have a very good niche there um, and have a very good business. You know, I think we took our paradigm of our existing business and, and, and tried to do that all, offer that all in China in the early days, and in the end, we've narrowed it back to two or three areas, and, and we feel like uh, over time we'll be successful there. So I think you know that there's probably one you know learning that we've been through and and, and learned the hard way in in the early days. The interesting thing is that it's you, know, you, you see these sound bites about the size of the population. If I, if I can only get one percent of it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, this is what it would mean. And you know, that's sort of the back of the napkin calculation that quite often happens. My observation is that you've got to be there for a long time um, to to see that return. You know, the Chinese are, you know, both formally through government policy and informally culturally uh, saying, yeah, we're, we're going to take you know foreign investment and foreign businesses, but we're going to do this a little bit on our terms. Um, and and you know. 
probably rightly so in a lot of ways. Um, so you, you've, you've got to realise that it's going to take some time to build those relationships and understand that market to better to, to get where you probably want to get to. Um, you know, the Chinese do think in a longer time frame than Western cultures. You know, they, you know at a high level, they think in dynasties and, you know, they have a rolling 10-year plan that the government works off and, and the markets that you and I come out of now, they ain't thinking in 10 year blocks at the moment. We're probably lucky to get through an election cycle at best at the moment in most Western markets. And that's a really I would important... agree completely. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so when I see, you know, these trade discussions going at the moment, you sort of see one country who's going, well, we can get through this. We're thinking on a 10 year block minimum. And you've probably got an election coming up next year. You've got 18 months to solve this. <laughs> so you sort of see that at a macro level. But at an operational level, it's about, you know, respect for the culture and respect the fact that they want to see a long-term commitment. You know, so we've researched there since 2009. Um, you know, we've got a really good history of data there and a lot of learning from being on the ground. Um, and we're starting to see the, the benefit of that, um, of that commitment. So I think, you know, to me, it's, you know, being really laser focused on, yes, it's a big market, but almost the inverse of think, think in the niche almost, which I know sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, a big market. Um, and then, you know, think think about how long it's going to take. And I think the other piece is sort of thinking about what local partnerships and relationships you're going to need there because, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a language challenge. There's, you know, some different cultural challenges. And again, it's like like a Chinese market going into the States or, or going into the UK, I mean, they would need to have some local understanding to be able to properly execute. And it's obviously no different for for US or Australian or UK businesses going into that market. But it's it's, it's a fascinating time, I think, for the sport industry. Um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting stage where the Chinese government's being very hot on investment in foreign um, organisations. And it's reasonably new. I mean, I think quite often, you know, I, you know, I try to explain to people the concept of team and fandom is, in a sports context, is pretty new. You know, the Chinese soccer league's only been going since 1995. So it's only just starting to get now that generational handover that you barrack for the team that your mother or your father barracked for, the stuff that's been endemic in the States and the UK and Australia for the best part of 100 years is still a reasonably new construct in China. So... Um, people tend to gravitate to following individuals and um, celebrities rather than they do teams at the moment. I think that will change over time. But, um, you know, there's just things sometimes that we take for granted that don't exist in that market. Yeah, and that's what's interesting because every time I talk to anybody, you know, if you talked about being in the West, every the metabolism for this kind of stuff being extremely fast. So I would say that, you know, in Australia or England, uh, you know, you, you might think a year and in, in the States, we probably think like maybe a month, <laughs> you might get a month, <laughs> your attention span for a, an idea might be, a, you know, a month or two. And, but, and, you know, when you say decades in China, it, it's absolutely true, right? It's, you know, their long-term focus is incredible and you have to recognize that. So to me, when people ask me yeah. about what's going on, if you're not committed for five to 10 years, knowing that it's going to take you that long to build those relationships, you're better to rethink what you're trying to do. Yeah, and the, and the interesting um, thing is exactly that. Yeah, but think, think long-term, but at the same time, the speed of change on the ground um, and the speed that you're sometimes required to execute is the other extreme. So you know, the speed of what's happening in social media there and streaming platforms is amazing. Um, so what you thought, you, know, you saw a couple of months ago, and uh, when I can't think I've got my head around that, two months later, that's moved. And then clients also want to move super fast as well. So it, it's sort of interesting sort of dichotomy of this big long-term commitment um, on one end, but also this incredible pace on a day-to-day basis at the other end, which is really exciting and interesting, but um, can also be really exhausting as well when, you, when you're trying to live through that. Oh, my God, yes. People, I don't think, especially in the States, they do not realize how advanced and how like uh, incredibly fast technology is and moves in China. They, they, they have yeah. no concept uh, of how advanced the, China, the Chinese people are as far as the technology and the, way, and the pace of changes. They, it, just, it has to be, I think it would make people's heads spin if they really had a, a clear understanding of that. 
Yeah, we, we took some clients to um, uh, the um, eSports uh, League of Legends finals and uh, in the lead up to that, we, we, we got some people to come and talk about streaming services to, to, to some Western broadcasters and um, these guys just sort of fell off the chair. They just didn't have any understanding of what was going on and felt quite naive. They didn't know, um, you know, the sophistication that's going with streaming and things like that. So, um, and it's, it's you know, it's probably a challenge for all of us to make sure that, you know, we're going to that market and spending some time there because there is a lot to be learning in a technology um, perspective and from a, even though it's got its eco, own ecosystem from a social media perspective, um, because of the government controls, there's still, you know, WeChat is just an amazing platform, yeah. <laughs> and um, it's it's been born out of a government-controlled old environment to some extent. But there's some amazing amazing functionality on that that um, that I miss not being in Shanghai. Quite frankly, it's, you can pretty much do everything through WeChat. Yes, that's exactly right. It's one of the most incredible platforms. If people have not seen it, it's it's unbelievable. It takes everything that we kind of take uh, from a hundred different places. It seems like in the states or in Europe, and puts it all on one platform. It's um, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. There's a great little video on YouTube if anyone's interested. I think if you, if you Google WeChat functionality and it shows all the things that WeChat does, <laughs> it's uh, it's like three minutes, and I think everyone I've shown that is blown away by it. Yeah. Um, well, Rob, thank you for doing the podcast. Where can I point people towards on the internet if they want to find out more about you and what you're up to? Yeah. Um, so. From a, Twitter perspective, pretty active on Twitter. So um, at Milsey Rob, M-I-L-L-S-Y-R-O-B. Um, again, on LinkedIn, pretty active on posting stuff on LinkedIn. Um, and then the, the Gemba Group website is www.thegembagroup.com. So between those three platforms, you'll see a bit of the business and, and see some of the things that we're up to. Yeah, no, I would encourage everybody to check you out. You out. I want to thank my guest, Rob Mills, for taking the time to be on the Business of Fun podcast. As always, I'd love it if you'd keep an eye on what I'm up to. You can find me on my website. It's www.davewakeman.com. You can find my blog that gets updated every day. It's incredible, right? You can also connect with me on the social medias. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just just search for me, Dave Wakeman. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at David Wakeman. And as I've said now for however many episodes I've been doing this, if you know the person who has the at Dave Wakeman Twitter handle, get it for me. I'd really love to have it. If you like this podcast, if you found something valuable, I would love it if you would share the podcast with a colleague, a friend, someone who would gain value from it. If you're also doing that, maybe you want to subscribe. We're on all the major platforms now. And if you're so inclined, I'd love it if you'd leave a review. All of these things add up and they make sure that people find the podcast and it encourages me to continue to deliver great conversations like the one with Rob Mills. I also want to point your attention to a project, a pro bono project that I've been working on that I am extremely um, proud of. The organization is close to my heart. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of all the people involved. Uh, If you visit ebresearch.org and visit Come Say Hi with Eli. This is a project that I've been working on for the last five or six months. Um, It was an organization, or it is an organization, founded by a guy you may have heard of, uh, Eddie Vetter and his wife, Jill Vetter, are co-founders. And we did some crazy, crazy work over the last few months to help bring Eli's story to the world. Um, it's a powerful story. It's one that's really, really compelling. Um, and I wish you would go there and check it out. It's at www.ebresearch.org. Finally, I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection for being outstanding partners, great people, and supporters of me and the Business of Fun podcast. You can find out how you can partner with them by visiting them at www.bookingprotect.com. Offering refund protection to your guests is a no-brainer in my mind because it gives your customers peace of mind. On-sale dates are going are happening earlier and earlier and earlier, right? Life gets in the way. It also gives your guests a chance to customize their purchase. And for you and your organization, it can create a brand new revenue stream that is substantial. So visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. 
like I mentioned at the start, while you're there, make sure you check out the blog. Right now, we are in the middle of releasing a 10-part series on trends that are impacting the live entertainment industry. Each piece offers you up an analysis of the trend, how to think about it, how to think through it, and some actions you can take to make sure that you kind of mitigate the impact or take advantage of the trend to have a positive impact on your business. It's been a really great series. The feedback we're getting has been great. And that's at www.bookingprotect.com. You can also meet me and Simon in person at the Ticketing Professionals Conference of Australia on November 14th and 15th in Sydney. Get your tickets today at www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. Again, I'm going to give you that email address because I talk fast and maybe a little mush mouth sometimes. That's www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. You get your tickets. Come see me. I'm going to be giving the opening keynote address on change. Come see Simon talk about customer service. Simon has built a world-class customer service platform in InsureTech, which is unique right? He has taken some of the best practices from all over the world and incorporated them into the Booking Protect platform. So if you're anywhere near or around Sydney, you should come and hear Simon talk about the ideas that went into that, the way he approaches customer service, his thoughts and ideas on customer service. It's unbelievable. He thinks about customers more than anybody I know, and it's a great opportunity to hear him talk. You'll also be able to hook up with us on the trade floor or just all around. So get your tickets at www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. And as an added bonus, send me an email with your receipt to dave at davewakeman.com, and I'll figure out some nice thing, cool thing, added value to do for you and your team to reward you for buying your tickets to the Ticketing Professionals Conference. That email address one more time is dave at davewakeman.com. Send me your receipt. It'll be great. Finally, I want to remind you that I do my newsletter. It's the business of value. You can find out or get the newsletter by sending me an email at that same email address, dave at davewakeman.com. Put it in the subject line newsletter. I'll get you added. I do all kinds of crazy things in there. Uh, give away stuff from time to time, offer up uh, value, uh, let people know the first time about special events or special opportunities to connect with me or work with me or see me speak or do something. It's all there. It's free. Dave at DaveWakeman.com. And as always, I want to thank you for listening to the Business of Fun podcast. And until I talk to you again, take it easy. <laughs>